You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. My guest for episode 104 is Dave Schramm, who gained fame as the original lead guitarist for Yola Tengo in the mid-80s, but quit shortly after the first album. You're right now listening to The Way Some People Die, a song that initially appeared on that first Yola Tengo album, but was redone in this version for the Schramm's first Walk to Delphi 1990. There have been five subsequent Schramm's albums, plus two solo albums we're going to be talking about Faith is a Dusty Word from the brand new Shrams album Omnidirectional, then I'll Believe from 100 Questions from the year 2000, then look further back to Wild Innocence from the album Dizzy Spell from 1996, and we'll conclude by listening to another song from the new album The Day When. For more information, please see theshrams.com. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com, and if you want to support what we're doing, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. I will have played a little of, I decided to split the difference, the way some people die from the Shrams, Walk to Delphi, 1990, which some people will know from the previous version from Yellow Tango's Ride the Tiger, 1986. Do you want to say a little bit before we get to the current stuff? I don't know if people know you mostly from Yola Tango, but certainly the bulk of your work, six albums now, has been with the Shrams, plus two solo albums. We're going to talk about the most recent thing, but say a little bit about, you know, back in 86, were you a songwriter acting as a sideman or a songwriter growing into his own or sort of how was the transition? How did that work there? I've always written songs, even from the earliest fiddling around with guitars and stuff. So I wouldn't say the guitar playing is secondary, but the songwriting has always been there. Back in high school, when we were trying to get gigs in the local scene, and there was the Zeppelin cover band and the Tull cover band and the Birds cover band. We were playing all originals. So we didn't get many gigs. And that was okay. But, you know, we would always been writing songs. I first came to Yellow Tango as someone who played along with their songs. But they knew I was a writer. So we recorded two of my songs on that first album. And I just I felt like I wanted to expand them more than... I was doing, and maybe I felt like I needed to lead a band, I guess. I don't know. So you've gone through several stylistic changes since then. Omnidirectional, your first Shrams album in 19 years officially, the most orchestrated of them, and Faith is a Dusty Word, the song we're about to hear, is one of the more orchestrated ones on that album. We've got some horns, we got a lot of sort of Beach Boys instrumentation. Do you want to say a little bit about the current project and that song in particular? You mentioned Beach Boys. It's obviously in the language of Brian Wilson. That was intentional. It's not really an answer song to God Only Knows, but it has some of the sense of that, not to be presumptuous. And I always felt I wanted to do it in that style when I wrote it, even to the point of having sort of a round at the end, which makes what happens in God Only Knows. And the instrumentation just came with the territory, basically. There's some Mellotron, there's some bass clarinet, which is doubled or tripled, it meant to sound like the baritone sax, and there's lots of singing, yes. Faith is a dusty word What did we
you know, it's really just the arrangement that makes this so the, the Beach Boys thing, particularly the bass. What is that bass sound that makes it it's so staccato? Al played it. He's plays a lot in that style already, but he played it particularly well. And then we did some editing after the fact, like in the middle section, he actually had a continuous line, which was beautiful, but we thought we wanted to have more gestures in there. So we did some muting of certain notes and stuff. So that was a part that was written by Al, but then subsequently rethought. So yeah, the bass definitely has that pizzicato. I think he might even have used a one of those felt mutes. Ah, yes, that's what I'm thinking of. There you go. I feel like throughout here, there's this feeling of the one, two, three. So boom, ba, faith is a dusty, ba, that it's not, you know, it doesn't hit you over the head. It's not a waltz, you know, or something, but just right from the beginning of the song, like you could easily have started the word faith on two with the piano, but it's just, you know, to have this. Faith is a dust. Let's just listen to the transition between the, what I'm calling the verse and the chorus, where it switches into the new key here. I thought when this started, you know, ignoring the Beach Boys elements, that this was going to be kind of a country song. It has the overall. But when you make that change, and then especially getting back to the original key, something strange has happened. Any insight on how you figure that kind of stuff out? No, that just all comes, this just flows out without thinking. It starts out in B flat. The choruses are in C, but that just seems like a natural progression, which follows where the melody wants to go. That was not a conscious effort. That was whatever the creative process brings you. Yeah, I can see getting into the new key with the chorus, that being a very natural thing. To actually get back there, so let me play the little transition to get back there. Which is all very sudden. I mean, it's just the one little ba ba and then you're back. Like, you could have kind of stretched that out for a whole measure to really hammer, okay, now we're going back there or something. Yeah, but why, why get cute? <laughs> that little turnaround is very useful to get anywhere you want to go. <laughs> it takes you back to the B-flat or it takes you to the A-flat before the chorus. It's handy. Yes. Let's hit the bridge here. So you've got a very stretched out sort of old-timey melody here. This is why I wasn't even thinking so much the way that Brian Wilson delivers God Only Knows. Like, that's not quite so florid as the way that you're doing this throughout. That it sounds more like an old country song or an old Tin Pan Alley song. The way you're dragging, you know, it's a very legato delivery of all here. And then when you hit the bridge, even longer, we're really stretching it out and giving space for this. I didn't realize an actual Mellotron. It's not just a synth Mellotron, Fool on the Hill flute sound. <laughs> It started out as a real Mellotron. Andy had a real Mellotron in the studio, but it, as sometimes happens with real Mellotrons, it was feeling poorly. Uh-huh. And rather than spend hours making it feel better and then recording it, Andy had a device which was purpose-built to be a Mellotron, but a digital device. Yes, there's no reason to... <laughs> I'm surprised any of those really survived because they were just notoriously finicky even at the time. Well, plus you're already at one remove from the real instrument anyway. <laughs> you're just cutting to the chase, really. 
So that builds really nicely back to the verse and the chorus, and you start layering the vocals more and more and, and create this round. Yeah, anything else about the stages of how this arrangement came together? Was this kind of largely, you had this basic thematic idea and this got built in the studio? Hey, let's add a sleigh bell thing there. Or was it a matter of pairing back what people were doing naturally in the band or what? The arrangement, as you hear, it was really kind of created all whole. There are some details which were not part of the original thought. For instance, there's some guitar gestures that JD added in a few different places, which highlight the melodic structure. But the way the guitar is played the that starts the song, the way the piano is all just quarter notes, and the way the bass moves within the song, that was all there from the beginning. The last thing to be added was the bass clarinet. We heard that and we said, well, that sounds like it's a song now. Yeah, that's interesting, even at the very start that you're doing this guitar thing with this quarter note, which would normally be kind of the piano part, the dun, 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 dun. Are you even strumming that, or is this like four-fingered plucking to make that more harpsichord? Two-fingered plucking, actually. And the B-flat has an F in the bass to give it a little bit of ambiguity, yeah. Well, let's talk about what the song itself, (laughs) you can be as vague as you like about this. (laughs) I will be vague, yes. The first line just says it all, I think. So much has been done in the name of faith that is ill and unworthy of the word. Let's just lose it. Yeah, will all your lonely days free you from the sway of every sorrow? What are you thinking in terms of sort of the narrative voice of the song? I mean, is this kind of just a poem spoken out into the wind or spoken to the populace at large? Or is there some kind of more specific setting as in most songs where you're, you know, telling off your lover or whatever? I'm not sure there's ever, well, maybe there is, but for this song, there is no intended audience. You're not thinking of who it's spoken to or for. But interesting concept. I don't know. Because the beginning, it sounds like you're waxing philosophical, you know, about what did we see in this thing? But then just the fact that you added the, will all your lonely days free you from the sway of sorrow? Maybe it's just sort of a poetic trope that, you're, you know, speaking in the general your, but that's the place where it deviates just from amusing about the meaning of faith to us and things like that. And then you go on in the bridge. You always knew what you wanted. I'm not like you. I listen for whispers and all the bells are quiet now. Like that sounds more like a traditional song. It's in second person aimed at someone, something, yourself. Who knows? <laughs> it could also be the general you could be the I am not always sure myself. So I'm always in favor of keeping a certain amount of mystery with things like this, not because I don't know what I'm thinking, but only because I like to maintain a certain amount of mystery so that it can have the ability to grow into more than it at first is. I'm not trying to ruin the song for people with this line of questioning. It's just more trying to figure out were these lyrics written in one go? The first couple lines came quickly and some of the other lines, but a good deal of it was painful, (laughs) as some of them are. That would be a perfectly good explanation for why in the bridge that it turns to a different style that you brought in from some different headspace, a different sentiment that was glommed onto this that, you know, makes organic sense. But, you know, if you had to actually write this up as a libretto or something like it wouldn't necessarily it would have to switch characters or something would be going on there. Yep. Yep. True. True. Let's get the second song out there. We're going back to 100 questions, which is 2000. Omnidirectional took 19 years to put together. Were those songs for Omnidirectional from throughout that time, or was this a more or less sustained burst of effort toward the end of it? Or why was a thousand questions the last one for quite a while? Hard to say. There was certainly a period 
where I wasn't writing many songs, although some of the songs on Omnidirectional had their genesis in some writing that happened around 2003 and 2004. Honestly, Now was written around then. That came out kind of whole, all the words and all the music all at once. In fact, when I went on tour with Yola Tango, for the Rock the Vote tour, we played that every night. So that was the first time that song saw the light of day. And a few of the others are from that era. And then there are a few that are from, I'd say, 2006, 2007, in that area. Nothing is really, except for some words, some lyrics, which came together more recently. Most of the songs were written before 2009. So I asked this mostly to shed light on, we're about to hear, I'll Believe from 100 Questions, whether there was something going on with that album. But it sounds like, no, that you still had momentum after that album and that it's just more how things were going in your life or in the music publishing world or other gigs you were getting and things like that. But there, there well could have been, based on your creative output, another album right after that. Let's get to I'll Believe and where you're at with 100 Questions, which itself is, a, I think, a sonic leap forward. I, I feel like every one of your albums is a leap forward from something that starts, I'm not going to say generic country rock, like it's pretty idiosyncratic chord progressions and, a, you know, a very definite style. And of course, your guitar playing style right from the start. But like, it just gets less and less easy to categorize as it goes on until now the most recent album is all over the place, that there's some stuff that sounds like it, again, Tin Pan Alley. So where are you at with 100 Questions here? I agree with you. That was a sort of a leap forward. 100 Questions definitely went some different places than we hadn't gone before. And I think a lot of the songwriting is a more mature. That's not always a good word to use. I think a lot of the arrangements and the sounds are more developed on 100 Questions. The previous albums, we sort of set the tone with the first couple songs and most of the songs followed that same general oral map, if you know what I mean. So like on Walk to Delphi, most of the songs sound sonically very similar. Well, if you've worked it up as a live set with the band, like, and you want to capture that, then of course it's going to sound pretty darn similar. But I think 100 Questions was the first one where we really intentionally tried to throw out all the preconceived ideas on every song, we tried to not let one song dictate how the next song was going to sound. Uh, J.D. Foster was a big help with that. He opened a lot of our brains to some new sounds and new ideas. So that was a, a huge help for us. What about I'll Believe in particular before folks hear it, just briefly? This is my favorite song from 100 Questions, mostly because the attitude, the execution, just plus Richard sings on it, which is a great joy. It just went places we hadn't gone before, and I just really love all the sounds that are involved in it, how we positioned the sound between the listener's ears. And I like the sense of the vocal, and I'm very happy with it, that's all. Oh. 
So a really nice groove throughout this one. Had you played this song live before and kind of worked out the brushes drum part and the, the light bass? It you know, really jumps along despite it being a very, the tempo is not fast. No, we had never played this live before we recorded it. The groove was created just right there as we were learning it. We didn't even really rehearse this. We just sort of went in and I showed the song and we started playing. And after a certain amount of time, I have no idea how much time it was. It wasn't that long. We found this groove. And then we started messing with things. The organ, which punctuates some of the changes, was that in there from the start? Did you have the organ player in the band, or is that a producer studio thing? That wasn't on the basic track. The basic track was probably just myself and Al and Ron. Maybe Andy was there. Andy Burton played the organ on that. Okay. Pretty sure. I think I might have done the piano on this one. The piano as kind of punctuated after the fact, right? Because you played guitar with them initially? Exactly. That was a overdub. Yeah, so a lot of really good call and answer stuff on a lot of your songs here, but what is filling up the specific parts, you know, in the I Believe, I Believe section, having the low piano riff and then the high piano riff, and then having that, there's always some kind of, again, kind of a, a short transition to get back to the next section. So this is one that, unlike the last song, where you just like one little two-note riff or two-beat riff to turn it around, get back. This one lets it breathe a little more, and it usually introduces whatever the weird thing that's going to be in the next section. So like if we're going to yeah. have Christian <laughs> doing feedback over the next section, like let's bring it in right here. So you've kind of been introduced it before you actually hit the one. Yep. Yep. I like to foreshadow, sure. Any idea how many guitars made it on here? There's quite a lot in some of these sections, like a lot of sloshing and crescendoing things and it sounds like more than it is because that acoustic guitar was mistreated sonically by jd quite a lot i'm not sure exactly what we did we he put it through the ringer so it's not the original sound that we recorded but i love what he came up with that and then there's quite a bit of a couple of tracks of feedback and then there are a couple of layers of that melodic solo thing okay so that's not just treated let me just keep going a little bit into that guitar solo. So that's at least two guitars plus the piano playing that melody, right? One's an acoustic, I believe, but heavily compressed and squashed into a different sound completely. It's kind of all kind of vague and fuzzy at this point. Have you like reinterpreted this one or ones that have been as developed as this when you go back, okay, now I'm going to do stripped down show or a live show with a not four guitarists? <laughs> oh yeah, we've played this live with two guitars, piano, bass, and drums. So it's definitely possible and that's a fine way to play it as well. But this is what happened when we recorded it in the studio. It's just a different place to be. So let's look at the lyrics briefly on this one. So this definitely seems a, I don't want to say a love song, but a relationship-involved song. Yes. Like the believing in question. It's, I'm going to believe in the integrity of this relationship, despite the fact that you're lying around cross with me, that kind of thing. Is that in the general? This one I have to keep mysterious, <laughs> I'm afraid. This is from someplace deep, I guess. 
we don't have to reveal what situations or whatever you're referring to, in the, but just the sort of techniques that you're using. Wrap up what we've already lost and give it like a gift to loneliness. I think that's maybe the best line in here. Certainly, it's a strong... When you have a phrase like that, I want to say, do you know what you mean? <laughs> but, you know, I know exactly what I mean, yeah. This is the kind of song I've written more and more, I guess. It's a moment in time or a vignette or whatever you want like to call that. It's not the big picture, although there's some opinions at the back of it, but it's a moment in time. It's a snapshot of something. I like writing like that because you don't have to be fair. You don't have to represent the whole of your considered emotion about something. Like it really is just maybe even exaggeration or of some particular dark impulse or whatever moment you have. Nothing dark at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, a moment could be a particular setting of contemplation or it could be an actual moment a momentary urge that you just like latch onto. It sounds like this is saying something. It's not a sort of straightforwardly philosophical song in the way that Faith the Dusty Word is, but there's still something about existing in a relationship and kind of what that is and what that requires. That's why I say this ongoing belief, regardless of the evidence, you know, which is of course an interesting connection to Faith is a Dusty Word. I suppose so. Yeah. No, it's a hopeful song. So the courses here, I mean, there's quite a few of them, but they're very short. And I kept wondering, it's catchy enough. Why not just repeat it in a row? I believe, I believe, I believe. You know, of course, if this were a cheesy uh, 80s, uh, <laughs> let's have the breakdown and have everybody clap through that. Like, it's too mellow to be an arena rocker, but it's got the melodic elements to it. Interesting. I hadn't thought of that. No, <laughs> but, uh, I like it as succinct as possible. Yes. And you finally, at the end of the song, okay, we, it's finally going to start a repeated chorus, but it's just the first line. <laughs> and then we're, then we're done and we get a bunch of the stray sounds that are left from the rest of the arrangement, especially this triplet piano thing that did, 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 you know, that kind of introduces something that sounds a little off. Enough said is all I'm going to say. Yeah. I guess one little sonic element I wanted to point out, it sounded like, so you had this kind of high, what I'm going to call a snare substitute that you introduced. I got the feeling that like you liked the groovy drums, but still felt it needed you know something actually on the three so it's about 53 seconds in i think is the first time it happens that's just the basic drum track and that's like a side stick on the snare that was treated to a great deal of reverb or delay or whatever oh really okay so it was not an overdub it was not any i was picturing a sampler of like we need an extra thing in here like just come up with a cool noise and no it's just that if you hear what happens with the brushes on the uh i don't think it was an overdub i'm pretty sure it's part of the fabric original track he somehow got that to happen i don't know i'll ask ron (laughs) you've got very organic sounding albums despite the fact of just the fact that you tried to use an actual Mellotron before simply pulling out the synth. The thought was there. <laughs> we wanted to, we would rather have used a real Mellotron. But. And that you faked a Barry Sax using bass clarinet as opposed to doing something digital or even just getting a Barry Sax player. That's just... You know, I'm happy as a bass clarinet, mostly because of the player. It was Doug Weaselman, who's amazing. And it fills the role of a Barry Sax, but it's not like having a bass clarinet is any less a musical decision than having a Barry Sachs there. Some of the guitar playing sounds, well, unless this is harpsichord. That's just acoustic guitar. Yeah, but it's got that 
plucked rather than strummed. I think I just read in the liner notes online that there was harpsichord in here somewhere. I was thinking maybe it was lurking in this song somewhere, but I guess not. There might have been, <laughs> but not on this song, I don't think. Uh, starting with this album and maybe a little before, I started doing a lot more without a pick. So a lot of things like on Faith is a Dusty Word, you hear the acoustic guitar being played without a pick, and this as well. It has a different percussive sound. Well, let's get the third song out there, Wild Innocence. We're going back to Dizzy Spell, 1996. So it's only one album beforehand, but at least this one, I was glad, has your sort of signature guitar solo that we can talk about, which I guess is the more pick noise that maybe that's why we didn't hear that. Even though we had a very prominent guitar melody in the previous song, it was not as raw (laughs) as I would expect. Do you want to say a little about this? You know, again, Dizzy Spell seems like that every song is is that much more distinct from the, what was on the previous albums, not as dramatic changes in uh, orchestration, but there's still some kind of crazy stuff in here. Do you want to say a little about where you're at with this album? It's not what I would call a straight-ahead rocker, but for us, it's the most straight-ahead rocker that we get, I guess.
All right. So this is another one where I really like the intro here. You know, it's such a gradual, you start at this point of tension with the guitar and then the bass comes in with its nice, you know, it's still playing, I'll say the McCartney playbook. And then, you know, adding the, just the snare in the second half, you know, before we have the full band come in, that it's just, it's a few more stages than let's play the guitar by itself and then have the whole band come in for the beginning of the song, which is sort of the obvious and very effective. <laughs> There's a reason why that's used all the time, but to have it kind of dribble in like this is make it sound a little extra chaotic. Yeah. And then we still play it exactly that same way live. We haven't changed a thing about it. In fact, we played the song almost completely the way it is on the record. Am I right that the organ doesn't even come in until right at the end of that first verse, you know, for that I think so. prominent yeah. riff? That, that little chromatic thing. Yeah. Yeah. And then once it's in there, it's in there, but you layer more. It sounds like the lead guitar has stayed out until the second verse, right? Wild Innocence calls, wow, wow, answers. Wild innocence calls. Just so you can have an extra thing, which it seems like it's hard for a live band, you know, <laughs> it requires some orchestration and telling people what to do. So they don't just start playing at the very beginning of the song. <laughs> and it's interesting because at our record release show, we're rehearsing sort of a new lineup. Kevin Salem is going to join us for some live shows. We're going through all these little things and deciding who, you know, where the lead guitar comes in and all that kind of stuff. So he's, he's going to play some of those gestures. Usually when we play it without a second guitarist, I can sometimes stick some of those in, but usually they're not there. It's fun for me to hear all that. Right. I remember somebody telling me, originally, like, when Eric Clapton plays Layla live, like, he can't do those things while he's singing. You have to have a second guitarist on stage to recreate some of that stuff, even if it's the signature you sound. I mean, is that weird to at least have some of this? You're still taking the solos, right? You're not. Well, no, he's, you know, he's going to do some of them, but, you know, I'm taking, you know, probably more than, hey, hey, I'll play more solos. But I also like to hear the same gesture played a little bit differently by someone who has their own sound. Well, yeah, even between the verses here, I tried to go where you go, and then you play, again, the answering guitar, but it's not always the same thing. It's just, there's something there. <laughs> and it could be the piano doing a little, like in the last song that we were just talking about. It's more like the characters speaking up than, like, here is a riff that you have to memorize. So one of the interesting th points in this song, about two minutes in, where I, I just wrote, it sits. <laughs> you know, so uh -huh. you, you've played the chorus here, and then... And we just have this, again, unlike some of the other songs where, like, let's just really quickly get back to the verse or maybe add in a measure to get back to the verse. Like, here, let's just take advantage of the fact that you can have it sit really as long as you want. It's a release. In that kind of setting, is it more you're w working this out live in terms of how much the drums can screw around? <laughs> it eventually builds up to the next part. It keeps going for quite a while. And then, you know, with the vocals coming in home, every day is yesterday home, more of these drum hits. Eventually, you know, you can't just go on forever. <laughs> no, but, and we don't. But I just love the way Ron develops that part. He has fun with that when we play live as well. But I love the way that drum part sits here and at the end as well. And the place that that eventually grows to is the solo, which I wanted to talk to you about one of your solos here. So let's just hear again some of it. So 
So this is the thing that you're most in demand for. I mean, I can, I guess <laughs> I would love that to be on many of my songs. <laughs> what we just heard there, any sort of thought about what your process is in putting one of these together or do they vary a lot between performances like of this song or they do vary. Once in a while, there is a solo or a melodic part that I like to play the same way every time, but I generally prefer to find new notes. Sometimes I'll start with the same notes and go someplace else. Where it comes from, I don't know. I try not to regiment this kind of thing. I used to fall into the habit of play phrase A, then phrase B, then phrase B, then, you know, like sort of compartmentalize everything. I try to think beyond the bar lines. I try not to play anything I've ever heard. I try to find a different way to approach where I am. I always like to talk to guitar soloists who are also singers and writers of vocal lines and to sort of Uh think about the comparative way that those things come together. That if you're, you know, and faith is a dusty word, that that delivery of dragging out the words there and deviating ever so slightly from what's going on in the background. Like I hear that sort of lyricism. I think that's part of what makes the guitar solo here great. But then, you know, of course, if you're singing, unless you're, uh, you know, Manhattan transfer, then it's not going to be, you know, then you can just add, you can be a little less strictly tasteful. You can put more notes, more notes in it. And there's a direct correlation between how much the audience gasps and how many notes you can fit in at least the final phrase just to really make it sound like a little explosion there i play more notes on guitar than i sing that's for sure so you've resisted the lure of eddie van halen say or so you know of, hopefully of, hopefully you want dynamics but they, they have to kind of be within a set parameters something like that <laughs> you know, you i'm all for the big guitar solo it's not like i'm against a certain amount of bombast but it has to be you know the right kind there's a lot of feedback say in the in the previous song and i'll believe that you used as a A texture. How much are you thinking in terms of your soloing? You know, how much of it is you and the guitar versus you and the guitar and the amp interplaying and using that as an extra dynamic tool to add feedback to the extra, make the notes a little longer or whatever you'd be doing there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's definitely, you know, you have to have the sound in the room. I mean, it's, it's hard to play something that has any kind of soul without having you know sound waves happening in the room you can't it's hard to play something like that direct into the board or something you know you need to have the give and take the interaction with the sound waves yeah and speaking of dynamics the whole song just moving forward a minute and a half is one of the longest ones on here and it's only five minutes long but we have this it's kind of done so we hit get our second you know home sitting again part by the end of minute four and then it's just the band pushing faster and faster and faster until it's, you know, more than double time. And yes, you have this, well, you had referred to it as calliope. I just thought it was the organ sound playing really fast. But that's just kind of what it's been doing while the whole band is going crazy like this. That ending probably comes from, it's probably an unconscious reference to, say, Satanic Majesty's Request or something, you know, those endings on those songs. Uh, there's a couple songs that have endings that change during the fade out, even. So I always love that kind of thing about that period stones. So I guess maybe that sort of found its way into the end of that arrangement. Having organ so prominently in here and having a lot of tremolo on the guitar and think, you know, adds, actually, I want to play a little bit of that where some actual dissonant part comes in on the, in the main guitar part that you just add an extra
is it playing the guitar above the nut? Is that what's just getting your high little notes? Yeah, that's the uh, squeaks. Yeah, you got to have the twang bar going at the same time. You can't just play the note. You got to affect it somehow. Yeah. Do you think about how, how this relates to the words that you're saying? Oh, I'm not sure it relates <laughs> at all. I, I, it's just what happened, you know. Okay, I want to go home, take messages, unplug the phone. I want to be home tonight. My home has a strong foundation, rock and stone. And every Mason knows that nothing I'll do will mean nothing to you. And that's nothing at all. So it sounds like there's a certain amount of frustration, even though it's like, oh, it's going home. No, it's going home in reaction to some stuff you're actively trying to get away from. It's a bad response to rejection, I guess. It's just, okay, be that way. I'll just stay home. Stay away. Yes. And you can stay home and seethe in a, in a psychedelic Yeah, it's, it's not recommended. <laughs> it's, 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 the point of view is not one I would take myself. So you pick these. Is this this is one that's still in the live set and absolutely, yeah, yeah. You characterize how this has evolved since. This is another one that's again very heavily studio arranged, seemingly. When we play this live, it sounds remarkably similar to the record. At the last rehearsal, Ron suggested that we don't do the fast ending, and I imagine <laughs> not doing the fast ending. So we still do the fast ending. The only reason not to do the fast ending all the way is if you could make it a transition to some other song or reprising another song or something like do something with the ending. If it's not going to do that, <laughs> because it does sound like this has to be the closer or pretty damn close to that. Funny. You should say that we had at times closed with this, but I think we were playing the second on Mondays. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's a good harbinger. I think. Yeah. I guess that's a, the way of working the audience up to expect some, mm-hmm. something unusual. Create some tension. So what comes right after this? Something really slow. <laughs> Oh, I don't know. I think maybe honestly now comes right after it. I'm okay. not sure. Any sort of thoughts? We haven't talked about your approach to backing vocals on any of this stuff, where you're putting the harmonies. I've noticed even a couple, they sound like fairly live. Like it's even if it's you doing both the parts, they're not even necessarily completely locked in. It doesn't sound like you've done them many, many times. I like a little bit of space bumping up against the phrasing a little bit, I think can create more pleasing harmonies rather than something that's totally locked in. Well, even on Faith is a Dusty Word, the fact that you kept the Beach Boys, the high part until the very end, until the canon is repeated for a while. And you thought that sounded a little Beach Boys. Well, here you go. (laughs) Well, as opposed to just, you could have very easily just pulled that out at the first chorus. This is confirmation. (laughs) Tell us before we introduce the last song, which is going to be another one from Omnidirectional, the other stuff that you've been up to that people can check out when I look at your Discogs page, your all music page, whatever that you've done stuff so with Freddie Johnson and Peter Blegvad and Soul Asylum, Richard Buckner, the replacements. That was on All Shook Down. The connection there was with Scott Litt, who was producing that record. And he produced friends of mine, Chris Damey and Peter Holzapple with the DVs. And I got a call. Would I like to come in and do some lap steel and some other guitar? Of course. Absolutely. It was just Scott and uh, Paul there. There were no other replacements there at that time. We pretty much finished the record except for a few overdubs. So I came in and did some stuff on Sadly Beautiful and also When It Began. That was fun. I saw you played on a Teddy Thompson album. I was actually meaning to ask you if Richard Thompson was one of your guitar. I hear some stylistic similarities, if that was one of your early influences. or Actually, not one of my early influences at all. I wasn't really um, that aware of what he was doing for some reason. I somehow missed until much later on in the 80s and 90s, well, maybe the 90s, I started discovering him. That also 
Teddy was nowhere. I did the session with the producer on that one. That was just playing a guitar solo on a song. I met Teddy long after that was recorded. <laughs> so has that been kind of what's been filling the time mostly? Is a lot of session work for different people? Or I saw you had a couple kind of steady gigs. What filled a lot of the time was a podcast sort of pseudo radio show I was doing called the Radio Free Song Club which was a club of singer-songwriters who gathered together either virtually or physically once a month or two months or three months. By the end, it was taking longer and longer to get everybody together to share new songs. And it was the brainchild of Kate Jacobs. And uh, we started it up with Nicholas Hill as the DJ and the host. And we had eventually, we had Victoria Williams, Peter Bledved, Peter Holzapple, Andy Partridge, I see you have. Well, he, Andy Partridge played on a song with Peter Blegved. Yeah, they, they did some collaborations. So. All right. John Paul Jones. Wow. <laughs> well, that, he's in there too, but those are the guests. Those are people who played on some of the songs. As far as the club members, if you're looking at the website. I see, I see. Yes, I'm looking at, I was looking at the special guests area. <laughs> well, still, that's amazing. I'm sad I didn't notice this before interviewing you. I'm sure I would have gone through and listened to a, a heap of those, but I, I look forward to spending some time with that. Yeah, there's, some, there's like 32 shows that we managed to do, and we're going to try and do some more eventually. So Let's introduce the last one. So Omnidirectional, again, has a lot of stuff on it. Uh, you let me pick the last one. I thought was the, kind of the catchiest one. The Day When. Do you want to say a little about that before we play it and say goodbye here? This is the one that changed the most from the demo to the recording. It is vaguely recognizable from one to the other, I guess. Even the lyrics, quite a bit of the lyrics changed. Was it supposed to be more mellow? What's, what was the... Not supposed to be more mellow. It, was supposed, it actually sat a little slower and groovier and had longer, more wayward freak-out sections between each verse. I think we lost a little bit of the grooviness but gained a lot of forthrightness. I'll just say power-pop masterpiece. Let's, let's put it that way, <laughs> just to sell it heavily. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I hope folks like that, and I've really enjoyed immersing myself in your catalog. Thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you for so much immersion. It's obvious that you immersed quite a bit, so <laughs> thank you for uh, asking thoughtful questions.
Thanks very much to Dave. Great guitar style, interesting career. Again, you can find out more about his work at theshrams.com. And you might also want to look at RadioFreeSongClub.com, as Dave brought up at the end. My next episode will be with Wayne Hussey, another interesting guitarist whose career dates back to the 80s. He's the longstanding leader of The Mission, better known here as The Mission UK. If you have thoughts or requests, please go to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com, comment on this or other episodes. For some reason, the commenting was turned off on the site recently, but it has been restored if you happen to be hearing this on the Partially Examined Life feed, because this is a Partially Examined Life Network podcast, I encourage you to actually subscribe directly to Nakedly Examined Music through Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, as you will hear the episodes much more promptly and dependably that way. And if you go to NakedlyExaminedMusic.com, you'll find links to follow us on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, and feel free to email me, mark at NakedlyExaminedMusic.com. I was pleased to bring you this episode without ads. If you want to continue hearing episodes without ads, sign up for the supporter feed at patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. Have a great day. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Yeah.